Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. <sighs> anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ad's are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. ACAS Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAS Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where people tell me the four things they cherish most from their life, and one thing they'd like to bury and forget, that they wish they had in a time capsule. My guest in this episode is the comedian and author Alastair Beckett-King, winner of the Lester Mercury Comedian of the Year. This multi-award winning stand-up comedian has performed on the BBC's Mock the Week, indeed famously on the very last programme, Comedy Central Live, Radio 4's The News Quiz and at Glastonbury. Following several viral videos and a sellout run at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, Alistair embarked upon his first UK tour in 2023. In the same year, Walker Books published ABK's first children's book, a comedic whodunit named Montgomery Bonbon, Murder at the Museum, which is followed up with Montgomery Bonbon, Death at the Lighthouse, and another book on the way soon, all of which follow the adventures of a young girl, Bonnie Montgomery, who is never seen in the same room as the beret and suspicious false moustache-wearing, world-famous French detective, Montgomery Bonbon. Alistair is also the co-host of the Lawman podcast, offering listeners irreverent updates on local folklore, and he wrote the script for the adventure game Unforeseen Incidents. So let's discover what this delightful, multi-talented man would like to have in a time capsule. Here is Alistair Beckett-King. And as if by magic, here I am in the... Uh, well, in France. I'm not far from Calais, actually. Uh, typically, I've brought a rather lovely microphone with me and not the cable. Oh. I've got about a dozen cables. And I went, uh, where the bloody hell is it? And so I'm recording it on my phone. So you're going to sound gorgeous. 
and I'm going to just shut up, I think. Good. good. Oh, brilliant. Great. Perfect. Um, no, actually, there's quite a lot of pressure on me now, isn't there? Uh. <laughs> Off you go, then. <laughs> <laughs> Alistair, I really think your book idea is a fabulous idea. And you're into the second one, aren't you? I Yes, I have, um, I have written two and a half books, nearly two and a half. Um, I'm sure that my editor would dispute the half. Right, okay. Um, so I'm in the middle of book three, or not quite the middle of book three, and yeah. uh, the second the second of my uh, kids who done it comes out in October, I think. Mm-hmm. But not, when you say kids, it is the sort of thing that actually, well, when I was going to say adults, but I meant me, uh, I, <laughs> I, I'd quite like to read. Now, me, did he get drawn in by the idea that she's called Bonnie Montgomery and then she becomes Montgomery Bonbon? Yes, she's a she's a 10-year-old girl. And of course, 10-year-old girls are usually not allowed to get involved in murder cases. So she has to put on a false moustache and a, a dodgy accent. Yeah, like a knockoff David Suchet, <laughs> and pretend to be Montgomery Bonbon. And you'll be pleased to know there is no upper limit on the books, so adults are allowed to buy them, and, and you don't have to pay VAT or anything. It's great. No, brilliant. You get away with it, yeah. Yeah, it's a steal. Well, everybody thinks they've got a book in them, and you sort of go, yeah, I, I could do that, yeah, if I could be bothered, almost. Mm-hmm. But um, for anybody who's ever tried... It's almost impossible, I think. It's horrible. I've tried several times and you just go, <laughs> and just go no, look, there are enough books in the world. Yeah, people will say, do you enjoy writing? I'm like, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> what are you talking about? Right? I used to, a few years ago before I had attempted it, you, you, you see what authors post on social media. You know, you mm. see authors talking about writing, like, it's so hard, you know, sometimes sometimes you just sit staring at the right page. And I was like, <laughs> oh, come on, how hard can it be to just <laughs> swan around in coffee shops the whole time? But now I have a newfound respect for their, for their tedious self-indulgence because I'm exactly like that. I'm like, oh, it's... Oh, I mean, I know I'm just trying to write a, a whimsical whodunit for children, but this is actually quite hard work. What? That's not why I agreed to do this. Do you have a sort of process? Because I know some writers say, oh, I do that thing, I get up at four o'clock in the morning and I, I finish by ten and then I spend the rest of the day relaxing. Yeah, feeding the ducks bread and stuff. Yeah, no. of course. You know. uh, no, I wish I could. Do. If I don't start in the morning, I find uh, I don't get going properly. So I do try to... I do try to start before midday, but I'm a stand-up comedian and I didn't become a stand-up comedian to get up at four in the morning. No. I, I became a stand-up comedian thinking I wouldn't have to get up at all, really. <laughs> I mean, I'm very pleased to have written a couple of books and it's delightful that people are reading them, but in terms of my life strategy, it's been an absolute disaster, I have to be honest. I was expecting <laughs> to be on the gravy train by this point, not slaving away over Microsoft Word. Yeah, quite. But, I mean, the part of being a stand-up comedian is that you are always, I suppose, your mind is cogitating, isn't it? Oh, oh, yes. Can you tell now that it's I can see you cogitating. You can see that I'm cogitating. Well, you're doing something under the desk, I don't know, but... I... <laughs> That's cogitating, Mike, yeah. Is that, that's what it is, okay. That's what it is. Well, you're the author. You know what words mean. I I'm, know I'm nothing. All, I, know, I know all of the words, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm England's Donald Trump in that respect. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I've forgotten the question now. What was it? Something about cogitating? Yeah, well, the idea... I mean, I like jokes myself, and mm. I do spend a lot of time sort of looking for the possibility of them. So my brain is always thinking in that way. <laughs> I don't even have the energy to sit down and write them down. When I think of them, I think, oh, that's a good joke. Yeah. And then I move on. 
And then it just it just slips away. It's gone. Like a poem you forgot to write. It yeah. just, you know, vanishes. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, you, you, uh, you're you a comedian in the sense of you're a comedic performer. Yeah. Did you ever do stand-up? Uh, not really, no. I did stand-up with a group of other people. So in the days when you could do stand-up not as a solo performer. So in the days when, in mm. fact, it was all right to, in a way, to perform sketches or to take a sort of a... You take on a character. So we did that. The opening of the comic strip when it first started... We we performed oh, there quite wow. regularly. We did some really terrible sketches. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about being groundbreaking, Mike, is yeah. uh, that when you look back at it, a lot of it was objectively terrible. But it was gra- <laughs> it, that was what was so groundbreaking about it. They needed those mistakes to be made. Yeah, I think. exactly. <laughs> we're uh, we're standing on the shoulders of giants doing quite bad sketches. Well, midgets, I would say, but never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I do like comedy, and I am a big fan of stand-up and comedy in all, in all of its forms. And the nice thing about being a comedian, I suppose, compared to being um, an actor, which I know nothing about, is that you can make it happen yourself. Like going to auditions is something I have very little experience of and, and only, uh, you know, only later in my, I don't want to use the word career. That's my <laughs> arrogant life. Yeah. The idea that you have to sort of wait for somebody to go, oh, oh yes, you, you there, and, and to get something. That's so weird. That's so difficult to me. I've always been sort of self-employed, whereas as a comedian, you can just think, okay, that, yeah, that, there's a joke. I'll have that. I'll say it. I'll say that to someone, and if they laugh... I'm going to stand up and say it. Yeah. Well, and people on the train say, will you please sit down? <laughs> that's the third time you've done that joke on this journey. Well, that's the number of times you have to do it to know if it works. That's the thing. You know, you can't just do it twice and throw it away. You've got to, got to give it a chance. No, no, no. There's always a possibility that the audience is wrong, I think. Yes. So that interests me, though, that you sort of say, we're not an actor. Because, in fact, the stuff you've done for, you know, YouTube and, uh, and Instagram and things like that, that you've got the most accurate American accents I've ever heard. <laughs> well, uh, uh, childhood wasted watching television yeah. has helped when it comes to picking up accents. Yeah, I do get compliments on my acting, which is very weird to me because I, I, I don't think that I am acting. I think I'm doing an impression of acting. Right. I, don't, I mean, I'm not an impressionist either. But I'm mimicking things I've seen actors do, whereas I think mm-hmm. I think actors sort of access something inside of themselves. I think there's a sort of vulnerability and openness to acting some of the time. Yeah, um, and I'm not. I don't think that's what I'm doing. I think I'm copying things I've seen in films. Yeah, I can see what you're saying because um, all actors find themselves doing it at certain times. They suddenly think, "Oh, I'm not. I'm just doing what I think." I don't know, Tobias Menzies might do. Mm. Whereas he just acts. In fact, what he does do is he doesn't act. Does that make sense? Well, I, I suppose, yeah, if you, were doing, if you were doing an impression of you, but in real life, that would be the most pure form of an impression. You, you would just <laughs> yeah. be being real. Today that we're recording happens to be the birthday of John Chalice. And people were saying just one of the great characters, Boise. Oh, of course, yes. But the biggest compliment you can pay him for that, I think, is that... People think that he's like it. Mm. If you can create a character that people believe is you, then you've really succeeded, I think. I think so. I, I was always I was always a fan of character actors, I think, growing up. Mm-hmm. You know, just, you know, stars are great and and you've got to have them. But I always like the, the odd people who turn up as po- postal clerks. And if if there's a postal clerk in a film, you're like, this is gonna be good. I don't I don't care who it is, it's gonna be someone good. Yes, I would have liked to have had the career of Richard Wattis. That's what mm. I would have liked to have been. Oh, yes. Just yes. Always, I'm sorry, you can't possibly be going there. I, the minister's not ready. Please. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant fun. Do people call you Alistair or do they call you ABK? 
Uh, both. I'm very pleased both. to have. I think I may have been the first person in history to have successfully engineered their own nickname in in the form of ABK <laughs> because people do call me that. Yeah. Uh, but but in engineering your own nickname is so uncool. I don't think I deserve it. <laughs> uh, it's just Alistair takes such a long time. Alistair Beckett King. People call me Alistair. People call me Al. Uh, some people call me Ali. But um, but Mr. Beckett King is fine for the purposes of the podcast. There's you there and there's uh, Michael Fenton Stevens on the other <laughs> side, you know. So we, we're, we're going to take the whole time saying the names. If yeah, we, we, we chose names you can't put up in lights, I think. No, not That's, really, no. <laughs> someone should have taken us aside and gone, you, you want to try something short? Ah, I thought about that when I became an actor. I thought about changing my name to something short. I nearly called myself Michael Harry. Harry was my father's name. Mm. So that might have worked. But um, the name I really wanted to be was either Grit Shingle, which I'm proud <laughs> <laughs> That's a Republican uh, politician, isn't he, Grit I think Shingle? he is. He is going to be the vice Perhaps president. He's just been yeah. indicted, but carry on. <laughs> or I wanted to be Watlington P. Risborough. Oh, lovely, mm. lovely. Is that, a, is, that a, is that a small village? That's very good. There is a village called Watlington and there's Princess Risborough. And if you go up the M40, ah. that's what you see. Oh, that's brilliant. I really hope that one day a young actor or somebody just starting out hears this podcast when I'm well gone <laughs> and thinks, you know. The only other advice I'd say to young actors is you could be, if you wanted to be, Laurence Olivier. Is that available now? Well, it's available, it, yeah. Now that he's gone, equity of... Open that up again so that we can have another one. Yeah, you could be him. Great. I know. Think of all the people. I could be Edmund <laughs> Keane. Yeah, so there's still time for me to change ABK for, uh, just swap it for Laurence Olivier, see if anyone notices. <laughs> people say, I thought he was dead. Get him in, get him in. <laughs> He's supposed to be very good. I'd probably get a few more auditions that way. Yeah. That's a great idea. <laughs> well, all right. Well, let's stop rabbiting on and let's discover the things that you've chosen to put into a time capsule, which will be fascinating, I think. Well, I hope so. So um, what have you come up with? What's your first thing? Well, my first thing, and I'm not sure whether this is a thing I want to preserve or whether this is actually the bad thing that I want to condemn forever, <laughs> but I, I've, uh, I've come down on keeping it in the preserve, uh, keep forever category. My first thing is, is a flyer for an Edinburgh Festival Fringe or Ed Fringe, as everyone calls it, show. Mm-hmm. Not even any particular show. Not, no, I don't particularly want to remember my shows, but I was um, this last week, I went up to Edinburgh. The, the Fringe is happening as we speak. Mm-hmm. I went up to, because of the book festival, um, because I, I'm an author actually now. So uh, <laughs> they paid for a hotel. So I thought, oh, well, okay. Uh, I went up for just, just to do one show at the book festival. And um, being there, being at the Fringe, but not performing, felt like being the ghost at the feast. But then I looked up, the phrase goes to the feast mm. and realised that's not what that I've been using it wrong for my whole life. It doesn't mean... What I meant was like being Scrooge when he goes into the past, but he isn't able to interact. Yeah, that, yeah. You know, that sense of being sort of there, but not there. Mm. And it was a very weird, a very weird feeling. And I don't want to say FOMO, fear of messing out. I don't think it's that mm. exactly. It's that I do enjoy... You know, I've, I've been... I've been doing comedy for about um, 11 years now, uh, which feels like no time at all. Um, uh, you know, and I've been doing it so badly for most of that time. <laughs> yeah. It feels like I've just started, basically. Yeah. I enjoy it. And uh, and not being there this year, um, I missed it. And I have such... I think it's the, the Edinburgh Fringe um, is central to sort of stand-up comedy in the UK, or it has been. Maybe that's changing, maybe post-pandemic uh, or mid-pandemic, I'm not sure which one we are, 
Maybe it'll never be quite as important as it was. I don't know. Um, I've noticed there are lots of um, people not going up to Edinburgh this year. That is notable, yes. Mm. Um, and, the, and the relief was enormous. You know, the sense of, oh, I'm just not going to do it. You know, I went on tour uh, for the first time, so I thought I'm, I'm going to give the Fringe a miss and I'll maybe do it next year. Uh, but then it comes around and it's like, oh, I wish I, I wish I were doing it. I do enjoy performing shows and I have strong memories. Not always good memories, <laughs> but strong memories of the Fringe. Yeah. And so that's, and also, the, um, you know, a flyer. Probably, it's probably been trampled by some punter. I've probably picked it up from the cobbles. Oh. It embodies the, the bittersweet qualities that the, the Fringe has for performers. Yeah, it's an awful thing, isn't it, to stand handing out flyers and then to walk past a bin and see most of those. <laughs> yeah, there's your face. Yeah. It can be a wonderful thing. It can be very unfair. And, uh, you know, and I've caught, like like everything, the whole game's rigged from the start. But yeah. I think if you approach it um, with the right mixture of naivety and cynicism, you can get something out of it and hopefully not uh, lose all of your life savings and dignity. Yeah. You're not guaranteed to come away with, with either of those things. <laughs> no. But it, it is possible. Yeah. The free fringe, or free fringes, perhaps I should say, are, are wonderful. I mean, it's still... It's still so expensive to, just to stay there. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's no way of doing it without putting money down. I think the reason I asked, because I, I know you're an actor, is I think actors, uh, actors maybe don't have a sense of how much less self-esteem comedians have than them, because <laughs> obviously you, you're quite a needy bunch, but we're, we're like that, but worse and less good-looking, usually. <laughs> I've, I've so, stood in the bars late at night with them. I know, I know exactly how needy they are. Yes. Well, oh, good, good. I'm glad you've... <laughs> I think I remember a few years ago I did a, a multi-hander show, so it was before I'd done a, you know, a solo show. I did a show mm. with other acts that... Um, that was put on in one of the venues, and uh, and they were very they're very good about it. They give you a flat for the month, and they give you a sort of a stipend of I think it was mm. five hundred quid. And I was saying this to an actor because I was quite pleased to you know mm. to have to have got that. And they were like five hundred quid for a month's work. You you want to get onto <laughs> equity? You're being ripped off. And I had to go. No, no, no. You don't understand. Everybody else is losing between three and eight grand. So <laughs> I get a flat and five hundred pounds. That's great. And he was like, he was just shaking his head, going, "No, actors would never stand for this. This is outrageous. no." I mean, I went up the last time I went up. There were four of us in the show, and we did the show, and we basically sold out for the entire run. And once you'd taken everything into consideration, I think we did make about five hundred pounds a week each. I mean, by the Edinburgh Fringe standards, that's a, mir- a miracle. Yes, that's an yeah. extremely good result. And the others in the show couldn't understand why, when somebody rang me up just before Edinburgh and said, oh, Mike, somebody's dropped out of our show. And I said, well, what is it? And they said, it's sort of um, a spoof on Sherlock Holmes, but he's American and we're doing it in this tiny venue, well out of the way, and it's on 11 o'clock at night. (laughs) And And I said, yes. And they said, would you do it? You can learn it in a couple of days, can't you? And I, I said, yes. (laughs) <laughs> because I just feel that that's what the spirit of Edinburgh is, I think. Yes. Yeah. And it is, uh, sometimes it's, it's good to make foolhardy decisions. I don't, I don't, it doesn't please me to see comedians having a really hard time of it. People do get really, really messed up by Edinburgh, I think, and yeah. financially as well as emotionally. And mm. I suspect that's often the result of really bad advice from agents. Nine o'clock in the morning at Morningside in a little chapel yeah. somewhere. It's a great mm-hmm. idea. Yeah, you've got to say the code word when you knock on the door. But actually when you get in, it's quite a good space. 
um, and, and they've, they've rigged up a few lights, so it's um, it's well worth it if they offer you it. Take it. <laughs> now, so this, um, I can't remember the name of the actress, but who did a one-woman show this year, and after her first night, she tweeted a picture of herself in tears, saying, yes. I did a show to one person. And the whole of the acting and stand-up profession got behind her instantly because we yes. all recognised it. We just knew what it was like to have that sort of experience. Jason Manford sent her a great big long message and everybody said, well, come on, let's get people behind this. And, of course, she sold out for the rest of the run. So she now owes us all 10%, I think. <laughs> I believe contractually that's the case, yes. <laughs> Is it not? Yeah. <laughs> I saw a lot of cynicism about her doing that, because I, I, mm. which, which I found confusing because... Um, I'm, are you like, I'm sure people do share things on social media in the hope that they will be of enormous benefit to their career. But, yeah. uh, you know, 99 out of 100 times they aren't. So she struck it lucky in that respect that, that you know, the, the likelihood of that taking off, because that sort of thing does happen regularly to lots of people. Mm-hmm. I, so I understand people going like, oh, well, you know, welcome to the club. That happens to everyone. <laughs> but, you know, she was lucky. People were kind. And it turned the run around. I, I don't understand why you would begrudge her that. No, no, me neither. Uh, although next year, without a doubt, on <laughs> the first day of Edinburgh, <laughs> there will be great hordes of young actors and actors saying, oh, I can't believe it, I'd only got two people. Please help me. Hashtag Jason Manford. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, um, his uh, kindness will be uh, punished. Yeah. Manyfold. Okay, we're going to take a flyer, just any old flyer. Any flyer, hopefully with a footprint on it, a trampled flyer. Yes, soggy from the rain. Oh, yeah. For a nine o'clock show just outside of Glasgow (laughs) in a scout hut. Yeah, Yeah, it says Falkirk, but it's not Falkirk, it's nearer Glasgow. (laughs) A long time ago when I played Edinburgh, we played when the Assembly Rooms was a a venue. We played the main hall in, in that place, which was about... 850, 900-seater. Wow. Uh, And in that same venue, there was a man who'd come over from America who was trying to promote a musical that he'd thought of. And it started with him standing on a bare stage saying, imagine if you will. And he described the whole thing. And then his daughter and son-in-law came on and sang the songs. And it was one of the saddest things. Oh. (laughs) It was awful. But it, it became a cult. Because people said, have you seen this show? It's it's really, oh, my God, it's gut-wrenchingly awful. And people went in hordes. <laughs> By the end, it was a, he thought it was, you know, this is it, we're going to go to Broadway. Uh, it's, I guess there's a, it's one of the charming and maybe cruel things about the fringe. Mm-hmm. But, but the, the oddness of it, the fact that something as weird as that will, could pick up an audience. Will is the, too strong a word. Yeah. Might, <laughs> might pick up momentum. But mm. also, there are things that have a, a, a life at the F- Edinburgh Fringe and a few other festivals that, that don't outside of that, that, that you probably couldn't tour and that you, you certainly couldn't do in, um, in stand-up clubs of a weekend. Um, no. And I think that's kind of, I think it's good, you know, that it, yeah. it creates a space for, for things which are a bit odder or more contemplative or simply completely wrong-headed and bizarre <laughs> like that. <laughs> yep. So uh, let's put that flyer into the time capsule as your first thing. Let's move on to number two. Well, this is also slightly Caledonian. Um, my second item is oats and oat-related food products. <laughs> okay. You are partly Scottish, aren't I'm you? I'm half Scottish, and right. it comes out in terms of taste for food. <laughs> 
I've just come to the stage in my life where I have to admit that I, I like a flapjack a bit too much. I, I used to eat flapjacks on a daily basis, and I've now, as, as I get older and approach middle age, had to knock that on the head. I, now, now flapjacks are a treat. <laughs> um, you know, flapjacks, oatcakes, porridge, they are, I think, the culinary equivalent of an overcast day. And the, the listener can't see how ginger I am, but <laughs> I know overcast days and, and oats are regarded as sort of bland and miserable by most people. But, mm-hmm. when you know, when I'm, when I'm eating a flapjack in dreary weather, drich, drich weather, to use drich. the correct Scottish yeah. word, mm-hmm. I feel like, yes, I'm home. This is this is this is my weather. This is my food. This is where I was made to be. Were you brought up in Scotland? No, I grew up in the northeast of England in in Durham. That's what I thought. Yeah, which is not Scotland, is it? It's not Scotland. I mean, I'm going to show my extraordinary geographical knowledge. No, you me. came right in there with that. It's not mm. Scotland. It's England. No. But culturally, I think the, um, the the real cultural divide, I think, is is not Scotland and England. I think the uh, I think in the northeast. I know I've not got a strong Durham or Geordie-ish accent. I know I don't, but I do think we're more like Scotland than we are like Kent. Yes, I think where I come from. Yes. <laughs> are you from Kent? <laughs> well, I live there now. Ah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say it with such venom. No, no, no. It's fine. You can say it with venom. I say it as if it's a slur. <laughs> yes, Kent. I will. <laughs> so yeah, and the other thing is I'm a vegan. So the fact that I'm not really a foodie will not come as a surprise. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, you're in, you're in France, and you know the France is famous for its wines and its foods and its mm-hmm. uh, patisseries, boulangeries, and its uh, and its desserts. And I can't eat any of that stuff because none of it's vegan. Um, yeah, and, and even the wine's not vegan. Uh, no, amazingly, a lot of it. it's got Isinglass. Not in it. I don't think they put fish in it, but they use fish. I don't yeah. know how. How extraordinary that is, isn't it? That you can't even drink wine. I know. I, well, there is some, of course, but it, but if you're doing, if you're going the proper traditional French wines, I I assume because the French are just unprepared to produce any food product if an animal doesn't suffer, and so they just added fish cruelty into wine. Yeah. No. Um. I have experienced on this holiday that determination by French people to not change. That extraordinary determination <laughs> they have. You know, we've sat in restaurants. And people sitting right next to you have lit up a cigarette. And mm. it's it's really alien. Yeah. I think perhaps France is one of the only countries that we can look at that have uh, – uh, I was going to say, like, we've got a good a good line in chauvinism, but we didn't invent it. <laughs> the, the French sense of French identity uh, in, its, in its positive and negative ways is one we can look at and go, oh, yeah, we, we can see it with a bit of perspective. We can see how absurd we must look to other nations when we look at France. Yeah, it's strange because we stayed in a hotel last night that was run by two Canadians. And we said, the food, this food is fantastic. And it really was amazingly well-prepared food and beautifully simple. Most of the ingredients taken from their garden. Mm. They'd grown it themselves. And they said, yeah, no, the, the, the French, they just can't cook. <laughs> it was quite a bold statement, I thought. Oh, wow. And you don't normally see Canadians starting a fight, so that's, they must <laughs> no. be confident in their own food. I don't think they thought that any Frenchman could hear them. So, <laughs> <laughs> Didn't hear the sound of cigarettes falling from mouths, berets being thrown to the ground, <laughs> onions being slung over the shoulder so they're not in the way, and other French stereotypes. Yeah, yeah. I'm particularly fond... For breakfast every day, I have simple porridge oats with milk. Mm. I have nothing else with it. I don't have any sweetener or salt. Not, not anything. Not, not even nothing. honey or 
Mm. A blob of jam, no? No. That is hardcore. Do you know what? I don't even cook it. <laughs> <laughs> is it like overnight oats or are you, are you making fun of me? I can't tell. No, I'm serious. I take oats from the packet, I put them in a bowl, I pour milk on them, and then I eat it. You eat them? Oh, so you don't even let them soak in? That, no. I mean, that sounds dangerous. What if they swell up inside you? Well, that's what I always thought. Actually, I've got a much larger stomach than I used to have, so maybe. <laughs> and that explains it. I'm, that's what it is. Um, yeah. I, just to be clear, everything I say on this podcast is medical advice. Um, <laughs> I am a qualified doctor, and um, yeah, that's what's happening there. Okay, thank you. But I really like that, and I like that simple taste of oats, and I'm very keen on a flapjack as well, and I think I'm probably I'm in the same situation it. as you, where it has to be a treat, otherwise I would eat one every hour. Hmm. You start to rely on it. The body starts to expect a, a hit, mm. a hit of OT energy. The slow release of OT energy, though. It is, it is a slow, it is fairly slow. It's not, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, in the, in the old days of stand-up comedy, everybody was um, doing cocaine and stuff, but there's not as much money in it these days. So no. if you can get a flapjack a week, you're doing all right. <laughs> on a rider. Do, <laughs> do, do stand-up comedians get riders? Uh, not in my experience. Uh, you might have to ask more successful comedians. Uh, well, um, yeah. If there's a kettle in the dressing room, I'm delighted. <laughs> if there's an iron in the dressing room, I'm ecstatic. What incredible hospitality. Wow. <laughs> if there's a dressing room, you're if fairly a dress- <laughs> If there's a dressing room. Wow. You mean I'm not standing in the fire escape as usual? This is pretty sweet. No, it's a tough life. You said earlier that you love comedy and you love stand-up. You must do, I think, because it's an extraordinarily gruelling existence, I think, being a, a stand-up. The amount of travelling involved in it and the singular nature of it. Yeah, it is lonely, perhaps, I started, I think, fairly late for a comedian. I was in my my late 20s when mm-hmm. I started. And I can see that if you started when you were young, you know, some people start when they're 19, something like 19 or 20. Yeah. You could approach it like socialising, you know. You, you, you're going to work and then you're going to, you know, you, you hang out with your friends and you're going to drink or you're going to try and have sex with someone afterwards and all of that yeah. stuff, which... Um, <laughs> Fortunately, it has never been an issue for me. No. Having started later in life in a long-term stable relationship um, and with friends already. Um, no, yes. I'm not saying I didn't make any friends with comedians. I've made very good friends with comedians. But uh, approaching it because I like the thing itself rather than as a, as a social thing. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like oh, I, I, you, can see, you can see how easy it is for people to, um, you know, develop an unhealthy relationship with drinking and, and, and with other with other things. Mm-hmm. And, and for those things to sort of take over and get in the way of uh, the, the fun of uh, telling jokes and people occasionally laughing at them. Yeah. It's forever been that case, I think. Mm. I go back a long way and uh, I remember people, really talented people, in a way sort of losing themselves by getting sidetracked by those other things. I, I know what you mean. And one of the things you realise, when you... So I, I, last year, was it last year? I can't remember. I was lucky enough to be on a couple of episodes of Mock the Week before the BBC cancelled it because I was too good on it, I think was the yeah, reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, you were famously in the last one, so you sort I of finished it. was the last one. Yeah, yeah. They, were, they were like, you can't do that on telly. That's and they just pulled the plug. <laughs> yeah, everyone else was really annoyed. One of the things you sort of see, because you shouldn't read the comments, but I occasionally do, and... and um, on Mock the Week in particular, because it's, it's quite, you know, it's a mainstream show that goes out to mm. people who, who aren't going to live gigs and, you know, aren't seeing up-and-coming comedians until they appear on Mock the Week. So, yeah, so yeah. whenever you appear on there, you're new. And you are new, you know, com- you know compared to um, the you know, comedy legends that have gone mm-hmm. before. 
um, or in some cases, are still on Mock the Week. Um, I mean that in a positive way, but it sounded a little bit barbed. Um, and I, I, you realise, I think, that people who are sort of um, sort of like comedy a bit think that there are about 12 comedians and they are the only funny comedians, and that ever and you know I think they think of it being like um, I don't know uh, elite sports where there's mm-hmm. uh, you know just just a handful of people who can run that fast, and everyone else, even people who are good, uh, are so far below. Which, which maybe is the case, maybe that is true. But at the same time, like the people who are so far below the top sprinters are still blooming fast. Yeah, and you can go to you know you 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 can go to um, a comedy club you know this weekend and see some acts who will make you laugh even though you don't know who they are. Yeah, which in many ways is more impressive. I think that they can do that. Yeah, there's no pre-existing relationship. There's you, you don't know who they are. You don't know their persona. They've got to establish it very quickly. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, and I think that's the thing that um, there are people who, as you say, fall by the wayside. There are people who who you start out with who who go, you know what, this is hard. I can, I could do this, but I'm not going to because. Mm it's easier to make money doing something more rewarding, which is reasonable. And there are people who, because of their personality and aptitudes and often mental health, are unsuited to the life, even though their talent is, you know, they may be equally talented, if not more talented than people who are, who make it and, and, and hit it big. And I don't mm. say that to take anything away from people who are super successful, because no. they can all do it. You, none mm. of them would be doing it if they, if they didn't have <laughs> the talent. But you realise that there are yeah, there's just, there are lots of people who who could have done it if things were different. Yes, and that's why oats are going. <laughs> put oats in there. You need them. <laughs> you see how I weave it back in so neatly. That and that is the reason I've chosen oats and oat-related food products. I knew choice. that was the reason. Fantastic, and I love the idea that there you are at a gig, and afterwards somebody says, uh, "ABK sex," and you go, oh, "Have you got a flapjack?" <laughs> <laughs> I hope someone listens to this and brings me a flapjack to a gig. <laughs> a vegan one, not no chocolate, please. Just uh, raisins. Brilliant. Okay, that's two things we put in. So let's move on to number three. Right, it's time to interrupt this podcast for some adverts. Sorry about that. Uh, of course, you can get this podcast without ads if you subscribe to Acast Plus, where you also get a regular bonus episode with me and John, my producer and son, talking about the podcast and our guests. Details in the description of this episode. Meanwhile, I'll be back very soon. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back. Right, let's not delay. Let's away to part two of my time capsule with the brilliant Alistair, better known to me as ABK. 
Well, actually, there's a better link than the one I, I did there. My third right. thing is William Blake's Marriage of Heaven and Hell, because I wanted to do something that was equally highbrow to Oates. <laughs> and the reason I say that is that one of the inspiring things I think about William Blake is he is, in my view at least, he was he was the, uh, the great genius of his time. You know, a, you know, a remarkable and completely original poet and artist and uh, thinker and individual, and also obviously a very difficult person to work with and an yeah. extremely uh, complicated personality who was never really famous, you know, n- never achieved what he ought to have achieved, you know, if, if, if the world was fair. During his life or afterwards, he's he's been reevaluated now. But you've still got to be fairly in the know to be a William Blake fan. He's not, you know, he's still in the shadow of uh, you know of other poets and artists who, um, in my view, were less interesting. And it's a reminder that like the difficulty for Blake was that he knew he was a genius and nobody believed him, and he was telling them all the time, "But I'm a genius." And they were like, "You're a weird little guy, and we don't like you." But he was right; he was a genius, and they were wrong. When did you discover him then? I was, uh, I think, I, I we read the. Songs of Innocence and Experience uh, for A Level English, right. which would have been in around uh, around the turn of the century, um, which makes me sound even older than I am. Most people in those circumstances would never pick up a book with William Blake's words. I in it know again. it was. I think it was the first time I was obliged to read something and found that I liked it. Because normally you have to sort of come to it yourself, and if it's thrust upon you in a classroom, you're like, oh, oh. And I think that was the reaction of my peers, I seem to remember. They didn't really get on with Blake. But I, I was never taught The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. I, I picked it up myself, and and I read it probably um, in my early 20s. And I, I had been uh, like a new atheist, you know, a, a big big fan of Richard Dawkins and that sort of movement that was going on at the time. And I still am an atheist but I try to be less annoying about it now. <laughs> Not such a zealot. Yeah. If, I, if you can use that term for I atheists. think you can. I, and can I, you? I, would have, I would have entirely disputed it back then. Uh, I, I think I started to go off the, um, the new atheist movement when it started, in my view, to get weirdly um, anti-Muslim and weirdly sexist. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which, which didn't, from my point of view, follow at all. Like, if you know, if, if you don't believe in religions, you don't believe in them all equally. It'd be weird to spend all your time banging on about Islam. And the thrust of William Blake's Marriage of Heaven and Hell, not that I'm going to claim to understand it, is a sort of a, a, a topsy-turvy inversion of the conventional Christian worldview in which heaven represents the forces of reason and order and control and a dullness and drabness. Whereas hell is the source of inspiration and genius and love <laughs> and passion, right? And uh, he, he says of uh, he makes the observation in it that John Milton uh, wrote in fetters when he wrote of angels. You know that the great poetry in Paradise Lost is when he's talking about the devils because mm. because Milton was of the devil's party, even though he didn't know it. And I, <laughs> I like. It, I've, I seem to recall reading Paradise Lost and going like, "Yeah, the bits with Satan in it are better." It's like yes. whenever Satan's not on screen, um, it's like, where's Satan? Can we go back? <laughs> I'm not enjoying this bit as much. I found it opened things up. I mean, it's very difficult, isn't it? To, to I've had many arguments with people about religion, and I'm an atheist. Two atheist uh, white men on a podcast? Is, this uh, must be a first. What's going on? Can't have happened well, before. It's ridiculous. We've, we've agreed. <laughs> Hang on, let's, let's get off here. Let's get straight onto Twitter and start a conversation. <laughs> but in the end, it's impossible to argue against religion in the sense that they're talking about something that is faith, mm. uh, that you have to believe in something that is unbelievable. 
And that's what makes it special. Well, I think we all... I don't want to imply that sort of atheism is the equivalent of a religion because I don't, I don't no. think that criticism is, is fair. But I think you're right that people are choosing to have faith. Obviously, religion often takes forms which are oppressive, but, you know, psychologically and socially oppressive. But we all believe things without good evidence. Like, mm -hmm. I choose to believe in the human capacity for, for kindness and that society <laughs> might get better. And there's not a huge amount of evidence, you know. No, like, sadly. Th there's some evidence, but, there's, there's, you know, the idea that humanity could, could go on and, and improve, that we might be able to tackle things like climate change and inequality. That's a faith-based belief. I can't back that up. Individually, we seem to have that capacity, don't we? Human beings individually seem to have all the capacities for kindness and generosity and altruism. And yet, as a species, together, we seem to find it impossible. If we've got a really good line in cruelty as a species, we, um, yeah. we contain multitudes, as does, of course, William Blake's writing. You know, there's, there's far more to it than that. And, and, it's, mm -hmm. and it's full of imagery that I can't even penetrate and bits that I'm sure I've misunderstood. Um, and my favourite part of it is the Proverbs of Hell, which uh, I have got a little stand-up routine that I do, which is my favourite stand-up routine of anything that I've written that I'm most proud of, um, <laughs> where I, I read a few of the Proverbs of Heaven and Health, plus a few that I have written, which I claim are better. Um, <laughs> really, it's uh, I, all I do is read some of William Blake's lines and then do non sequiturs, which are obviously the ones I wrote in between them. But it's not an extremely sophisticated piece of uh, <laughs> comedy. But it sounds like the kind of thing you shouldn't be able to get away with um, in a club on a Friday night or a Saturday night. And I'll be honest, sometimes you can't. But yes. often, <laughs> often you can. And I, I like that because I'm always pleased when I'm able to sort of put over against an audience who, I, you know, an audience who I think, oh, might not go for this. I'm always pleased when by the time we get to that point, if I can get them to be quiet for the quiet bit, you know, for the quiet bits and then mm. properly laugh on the funny bits, that's the ideal balance. You don't want them to sort of chitter excitedly through the poetry. You want them to listen. Mm -hmm. And you don't want them to not laugh. So, you, so complete <laughs> silence isn't desirable and complete noise isn't desirable. But the, the ideal rhythm of silence, laugh, silence, laugh, silence, laugh is, is beautiful. And, and it's, delight, it's delightful to know that I'm, I'm also sneakily reading a bit of uh, William Blake when, when all they wanted was to be entertained. <laughs> I think I've made you listen to something I like. Can't he just say fuck? It's much funnier. <laughs> Weirdly, I don't, it, it, I don't. People don't like it when I swear. I think I don't. I don't swear no. very much as a as a person normally, and I think uh, I can't swear or rant on stage. It's it's not in character. And like if if someone heckles, I can't I can't really put them down. It's, uh, I look like a substitute teacher who's losing control of the class. Well, quite a good way to deal with it is to sort of go, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're probably right. Yeah, because <laughs> well, uh, when someone does it, like, this isn't funny. I like, you know, it's not for everyone. <laughs> I can see it from your point of view. <laughs> yeah. I can actually see why this would be irritating. So fair point. Thank you for the feedback. There's not much I can do about it now. <laughs> Send me an email with your thoughts. That's a good idea. You should put your email address up behind you and just say, <laughs> please don't shout out. If you've got anything to say, you know, send me an email. I have had that. I have had people email me, um, you know, I, I'll have done a joke where I said, because I have long hair and a beard, mm -hmm. um, people say that I look like Jesus. And the, the joke is something like, and I can't remember because I don't do it very much. Um, of course, that's ridiculous. I don't look like Jesus because I'm white and Jesus was imaginary. <laughs> and it's a, bit, it's a bit of a wanky kind of atheist joke. And, mm -hmm. But also I think what's, what's funny about the joke is that I'm being unfair. 
what's funny is that I'm the one who's being unfair to Christians there and Christian <laughs> faith. And you get the email saying, well, you wouldn't do that joke about Muslims. And it's like, I, I, no, I, I wouldn't. And But the main reason for that is if I made an equivalent joke about Muslims, an audience wouldn't laugh at it because they'd be really tense. And then Mock the Week wouldn't put that in the edit of the TV show, and then you wouldn't have heard it. There is no audience that would laugh at me making a, a similar joke about Muhammad, not that you could make a joke about how Muhammad looks. But the other reason is, like, well, I was brought up with Christianity. You know, like, if I make a joke at the expense of my dad, that's different mm. to making a joke at the expense of someone else's dad. Yes. It's like, he's my dad. I'm allowed to... I'm talking about something I know about. It's different. Yeah. It's just different. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. Of course, we don't know what Mohammed looks like, so you couldn't compare yourself to him. Exactly. We have no idea. So that's the reason. So it, it doesn't work for like nine reasons, as I explained in my lengthy reply. <laughs> I love the idea that Jesus was basically Scottish. <laughs> <laughs> Scottish Jesus. Um, he did enjoy very plain bread, didn't he? <laughs> he did, um, yeah. And he liked a wine, so it's possible. <laughs> Does he turn up in Outlander? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, brilliant. Well, I'm slightly envious. I don't really know William Blake. I've never really read it. I know what it is, and I know what he did to a large extent, but I don't really know it enough to... to um, well. <laughs> to say whether you're right or wrong, which I wouldn't do. <laughs> well, the good news is if the book's in the time capsule, you don't have to read it then. So if you don't like it, that's fine. That's true. When I did A-Level, unfortunately, we didn't do William Blake. We did Dylan Thomas, or as our teacher used to call him, Dylan Thomas. Oh. And we all had to agree he was very Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Okay, let's go to number four. Uh, it's getting even more specific. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, this is my last good thing. Yeah. So I'm going to select, because I think it represents many things that I like, the St. James Infirmary Blues, as sung by Cab Calloway, as animated by Fleischer in a Betty Boop cartoon. (laughs) So if you didn't know William Blake, then this is a real long shot. (laughs) That's very specific. Is that, so I know who Cab Calloway is. Then we're off to a flying start. I know Betty Boop. Yes, it's Fleischer's version of... Sleeping Beauty, I think. It's, it's, a, it's a short. Um, right. It's black and white. And it involves a rotoscoped Cab Calloway. Um, so they filmed Cab Calloway performing the St. James Infirmary Blues, which is a blues slash jazz trad song. So it's a, mm-hmm. nobody knows who wrote it. It's a, essentially, it's an American folk song. And there's, right. there's dozens of versions of it, um, wildly different from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and Cab Calloway performs it, and then they they essentially traced over him. So the the movements are exactly Cab Calloway's dancing, but with a, a ghost. Um, and it's a it's a it, so it's a very eerie, creepy animation. But it combines lots of things. I like, you know, I'm I'm I love the um, the folk tradition. I'm I'm into folk tales and mm-hmm. and folk songs, and I particularly like American traditional music, like like blues music, all the way through to you know Bob Dylan and Tom Waits and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm a, a, a dilettante animator. I love to draw. I love to animate things. So I thought this this is a good one because it, it jammed all of those things together. And it, it also represents my other love, which is of extremely specific and obscure references that people don't get. <laughs> well, you've succeeded on all levels. I wish I could sing because I would just sing St. James Infirmary Blues for you now so you knew which song I was talking about. But um... St. James's Infirmary Blues. Now, the thing is, I have a friend who works for the PRS, and he says that unfortunately at the moment, when things are on a podcast, 
There is no PRS payment for them. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, they're trying to negotiate it at at the moment with all the podcast people. So you would think Mm. that would become crucial. But what it said to me was, oh, that means I can play music. and They can't touch it for it, yeah. Well, just pop in a little clip of it. I mean, Callaway's not getting royalties now, is he? So it should be fine. These are from 1937. It'll be out of copyright any minute now. At the end, I'm going to put... Actually, I might pop it in now. I'm going to pop it in. Here it is. Folks, I'm going down to St. James Infirmary. Wasn't that good? That was fantastic. What a banger, as the youth say. <laughs> that tune slaps. Tune, as the Gen Xers said. What a cool cat. <laughs> yeah, all the Hepcats were watching that and listening to that. And, I, lo- you know, St. James, <laughs> I, I love the mystery of folk stories, folk tales, the fact that they don't have an origin point. And, um, you know, you can trace, people People have attempted to trace St. James Infirmary back to, I think, an English song, The Unfortunate Rake. So it has the same origins of Streets of Laredo, another American song, going to the hospital and finding someone dead. I think the imagery implies that the person who has died because of um, venereal disease, and I think the implication is that the singer is therefore doomed because, you know, their lover has died of syphilis and therefore they're doomed. But, of course, filtered through, you know, numerous versions and the fact that, you know, people people are being euphemistic about that sort of thing because it's about sex. You end up with sort of, a, you know, a very creepy, tragic, mystical, magical song. Strange, though, isn't it? Because in all other forms of uh, certainly medieval stories, sex is absolutely straightforward. It's right up there. One of the interesting things about American blues, I think, um, is that there is there is the dirty blues, and there, we've got a few recordings of them, and they're, they're really rude. Like, you know, they're not sort of old sort of British comedy double entendre rude. They're just, they're just openly about the thing that they're about. And then there's the rest of the blues where any action at all can be a, a euphemism for sex. Dusting my broom, I, I think, means... Well, I think we can probably imagine what that means. <laughs> uh, squeezing a lemon. Cooking cabbage, I think, in one of them. Like anything, mashing potatoes, yeah. and just about anything can mean... And, I, and the... The uh, the rustic imagery, uh, well, rustic is probably an unfair word to use to describe the the everyday imagery of poor African Americans in the early twentieth century. Mm-hmm. But it is the imagery, you know, of uh, of trains, trains and station wagons uh, <laughs> and yards that are swept and uh, and farms that are worked that come together in in ways that uh, sort of touch on the magical. I think. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, let's put that in. The whole thing, the St. James Infirmary Blues, sung by Cab Calloway as animated by Fleischer. Yes, which people will have to look up specifically, I think, (laughs) in order to see exactly what it is. But that's always an exciting thing to do at the end of a podcast, I think. I think so. Mm. Thank you for that chore. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah, sorry, did you not get the reading list? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's move on to the thing you'd like to put in there and bury and forget. Oh, okay. So uh, this was a tricky one. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I considered the thing that I put down a minute ago, and now I've lost it, because I, a lot of us during lockdown discovered that um, the person we were living with was quite annoying. <laughs> I discovered that I was very annoying. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I made a lot of little videos for the internet, and that involves all sorts of props, and I have a tendency when I stop using an, an object of any kind, a pencil sharpener, a, a fake moustache, or a pipe, to simply put it down wherever I am and in, in a very, very small flat to be completely unable to find it again. And it makes me so cross. <laughs> um, but I think um, 
I think in the end, I, I, um, the thing I'd like to put in is, is I, and this is something that is specific to, to my generation, is it's people my age sharing nostalgic memes or really doing nostalgia of any kind. <laughs> because I, I didn't think we were going to do that. Uh, I, you know, I thought the old people, they're, oh, it was, it was brilliant in the old days. You, you, you'd go out for 16 hours a day. Your parents didn't look after you. You'd, you'd all stumble in a coal mine. Mm-hmm. That's what it was like in Durham, but not in that accent. <laughs> you'd stumble into a coal mine and it'd be fine. And the kids these days are on their phones. I never thought that my generation would would succumb to nostalgia for the past for the, for the 1980s and things. Quite and, yes, and and it's it's completely happened, mm. and uh, I'm 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 baffled and annoyed by it. I saw. I apologise now for purely airing grievances, but I I saw someone sharing a, a video of uh, of Durham City in the 1960s, and social media is not the real world um but the, it, but it's full of um it's full of accounts saying you know um well isn't this old building lovely and look at this old quaint footage from the olden days mm. and i think the the subtext of it is quite reactionary but the problem is you sound like a, a maniac if you say the subtext of this video of the 60s is that immigration is bad but i think that is the subtext <laughs> that's what of you're these saying accounts. Yes. every every one of them has a little statue as their avatar mm-hmm. and the, and they have a picture of a nice old building and then an ugly modern building and they're like huh, what happened <laughs> it's like i don't know in my experience they cleaned the buildings <laughs> they well the, yeah i mean i remember coming to london years ago and how filthy everything looked and it, it is cleaner now yeah. um, or at least visibly i'm sure the air quality is <laughs> no, still quite. terrible uh, people do that thing constantly don't they on uh, instagram and twitter and things where they say who remembers this chocolate bar oh yeah and it's look I'm in favour of remembering things. Yeah. I'm not saying... We can all remember a thing. I'm not saying that's wrong. <laughs> it's when it's in service to something... The, the weirdest thing about sharing a video of Durham from the 1960s, you know, it's the shots of the beautiful cathedral and the quaint streets, and it's like, that is what Durham looks like now. Like, it, okay, the shop fronts are not doing that well at the moment, but that's that's kind of because of 13 years of conservative government. Yeah. Possibly. No, no, I think without doubt. But of all the places to be nostalgic about, you know, Durham is a really weird one. And that's why I feel that I, I hate to see this. I hate to see, you know, the love. I like, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a white middle class English person. You know, I enjoy a nice cup of tea. I like old buildings. Mm-hmm. I like books. I like, you know, I enjoy looking at statues now and again. I enjoy all <laughs> of the things that you're supposed to enjoy if you like this kind of nostalgia. Even though I'm an atheist, I don't mind seeing a church. No. But I hate, I hate beauty and that sort of thing being sort of co-opted. As, as something that's been, you know, this is what they took from you. It's right. Like, who? Who? Say it. Yes. Say what you mean. I hate it. I completely agree with you. I can see exactly what you're saying as well, really, that that hidden behind that, oh, things were so good then, weren't they? Well, were they? Oh, were yeah. they? You've you know? you got to ask, were they? Mm. Like, well, yeah, the, the police used to systematically turn a blind eye to domestic violence. In the good old days, look how nice the buses looked. Yeah. The good old days. In the good old days when 40% of your teachers were paedophiles. Yeah. <laughs> certainly my experience. I'm older than you, so I remember the good old days. The old good old days. The ones before that people then were saying, why can't we get back to them with all this music you can't understand the words of? <laughs> it's a thing that is constantly happening, I think, and, and every yes. generation thinks maybe the world that they had when they were young 
is the best world and it's been spoiled somehow. But I completely agree with you that underlying that philosophy is the idea that it's been spoiled because all these other people have come here. Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. So I think um, perhaps actually the good old days, is it might be a little bit broader than nostalgic memes, but perhaps it is the good old days I want to condemn. Condemn. Um, Because... um, yeah, I don't, I don't really believe in the good old days. No. I, I, know it's, it's gonna, I suppose it's inescapable. I'm sure it will happen to me. I mean, when they, when I see a tweet saying they're going to remake Little Shop of Horrors, I do go, well, there's no need because the puppetry is impeccable. <laughs> I'm still capable of having my buttons pushed. Yes. Um, but, uh, I mean, if they do remake it, I'm, 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 I'll watch it, but angrily. Mm-hmm. It'll happen to all of us, I suppose. Yeah. I just think uh, it's not. That I think young people are infallible. It's just it's hard to think of. It's hard to think of many examples in history where the old and the young were at each other's throats, and the young people turned out to be wrong. And I feel like, and a lot of issues, climate change and uh, and other cultural issues, the divide is is so obviously generational. Mm. And I think the people who are under thirty are so obviously right. Yeah, and rightly angry. I think justifiably so. Yeah. Oh, my Lord. Well, of course, being of that old generation, uh, I, I, some of us do try. We try our damnedest. <laughs> but you're right. It is something that, that really we should be handing this over, the idea that, that we're leaving it to politicians to decide what's the right thing to do when they're terrified of losing the vote because of Ulez. And you say, oh, for goodness mm. sake. Ah, yes. What if it had been, like you say, the, the smoking ban? Mm. You know, like that, something, something that was not extremely popular until it passed. Yeah. And now it seems weird that we were constantly smoking in nurseries or whatever it was we were doing before. <laughs> I can't remember. Strap my children into a chair at the back. What's the point? I'm a perfectly <laughs> safe driver. And anyway, I've only had five pints <laughs> whilst lighting a cigarette and driving with one hand. Oh, for goodness sake. I know. I completely agree. And uh, the whole idea, my mother used to say, in the good old days when I was a young girl, we all just left our doors open. You never had to lock a door. And I said, mm. you didn't have anything worth nicking. <laughs> yes. That's the other thing. Something you occasionally hear from uh, from politicians and, and comedians trying to sort of claim gritty working class backgrounds is things like, you know, my, my grandfather worked as a miner or, you know, my, my grandfather was a was a farmer. It's like, but everyone's grandfather was. <laughs> like, there's a very small number of people who had extremely wealthy grandparents, but that's the story of the 20th century. Everyone's grandparents were working class, pretty much. My grandfather was the Duke of Marlborough. Oh, damn, damn. <laughs> yeah, you know if he wasn't a farmer, because he had carriages. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, all right, well, let's put the good old days. The good old days, straight in the hole. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right, ABK. Bless you. What a lovely thing. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. It's been fun. It's been great to meet you, and uh, and I really look forward to reading both books that are done and the one that's nearly done. <laughs> It'll be finished. I will finish it. i better get back to it right now. Lovely. OK, thanks, mate. Cheers. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Alistair Beckett-King. Do subscribe to this podcast while you're here. It's a simple click of a button online and then you'll receive all new episodes as they're released. Of course, it's up to you when you listen to them. We'd also appreciate it if you'd rate the show and possibly even go the whole hog and leave a review, especially if you've listened to a few of the 300-plus episodes we've released. Do follow me on my time capsule on social media. We're easy to find and some say easy to ignore, but have a look anyway. You can download or stream the past the peas composed and performed 
Bombed theme tune on Spotify. And this has been a cast-off production for Acast. Thanks for listening. Although I must admit, I did feign ignorance in this episode. <laughs> did you notice? Yeah, obviously I knew loads about Blake. I just didn't want to show off. No, I'm very keen on his work, especially the Sergeant Pepper's cover. Or is that the other Blake? Oh, of course it is. Everyone knows that Blakey from On The Bus has designed that. What an idiot. Bye. Oh, no, Peter Blake. Oh, sorry. Sorry.